Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government live public event on whether the government is making the right policy decisions on energy. Uh, my name is Alex Thomas and I'm a programme director at the IFG and really pleased that you can all be joining us here today for this discussion. Um, it's a crucial moment for energy uh, policy. The government is facing any number of really significant decisions over the coming months and years. We had an energy white paper before Christmas. We also had the sixth carbon budget, carbon budget from the Committee on Climate Change. There are huge questions over new technologies, future of nuclear policy, uh, and how to decarbonise heat and power. Uh, and there are real questions over the extent to which the government is ready to face those challenges and address some of the trade-offs that are going to be uh, necessary. So a really timely event. Uh, and uh, as I say, very pleased that you will, are all here to join us for this discussion. Um, we want to make this as interactive as possible. So use the Q&A function uh, that is uh, available to submit your questions. Do say, if you can, who you are, where you're uh, uh, watching from so that we get a sense of uh, who the audience uh, are. Um, and I will remind you about that regularly throughout the um, event. Also, tweet along. We'll be tweeting at IFG events and the hashtag is hashtag IFG energy for this uh, event. We've got a brilliant panel to uh, discuss the question. Um, uh, Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Professor Dame Julia King, who is Deputy Chair of the Climate Change Committee and Chair of the Carbon Trust. Uh, we'll be talking to Guy Newey, the Strategy and Performance Director at the Energy Systems Catapult and a former Special Advisor, the Department for Energy and Climate Change and at Bayes. Uh, Emma Pinchbeck, who is Chief Executive of Energy UK, and Will McDowell, who's a senior researcher at the Institute for Government, has been thinking about um, energy policy for a long time, published a report uh, in December last year about the use of evidence in energy policy making. So welcome to all of them. Um, do get your questions uh, coming in. Uh, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to a really good uh, discussion. Um, so uh, I'll come to uh, you, Baroness Brown, uh, first. Julia, the Sixth Carbon Budget, as I mentioned, published before Christmas, it makes clear just how big a challenge net zero will be. I mean, effectively, the 80% target um, has been brought forward 15 years to 2035. Um, what do you think the most significant challenge, the biggest gap for government to overcome is to get us to where we need to be um, in, in, in those 15 years? Uh, thank you very much, Alex. Well, I wish, um, I wish there was just one gap uh, I could deal with. Um, so I'm going to make four points. I could go on and make quite a lot more, but uh, I realise the time constraints. So my first point would be about delivery. Uh, we've got to move on from statements of policy and intent to actually delivering that policy and that intent. The 2020s really do have to be a decisive decade of progress if we're going to meet these targets. And of course, we've got to do that despite the huge extra challenges that are being put on everybody and particularly on, on our civil servants by dealing with COVID and by dealing with Brexit. But by 2030, we've got to have halved our oil use to be on track. We should be seeing a 35% reduction in gas use. We should be on the brink of the acceleration to double the size of the electricity system. And we should be seeing emissions getting onto a really rapidly accelerating downward path. So, of course, that will need investment. So my second point 
is about investment. Investment in net zero infrastructure is currently running at about 10 billion per annum. That needs to increase to 50 billion by 2030. It's a big increase, but of course, it's only about 10% or so of the running annual investment of about 400 billion. However, we've got to make sure that net zero is embedded in every decision that government takes. My third point is about one of the most challenging areas, which is decarbonizing our homes and business, business and buildings. Sorry, uh, That accounts for about 20% of our emissions. Uh, so it's one of the most important. But of course, it's also the most challenging behaviorally and very challenging for policy. It's the area that needs most government funding um, as well. So government intervention is going to be absolutely key to getting it to happen. So it's great to hear the target of 600,000 heat pump installations by 2028, but news of chaos in the 2 billion Green Homes Grant scheme is not such good news. And my final point is about transport, 25% or so of our emissions, and actually creeping up in the last few years. We really have got to accelerate the uptake of electric vehicles. We're going to have a real challenge to address the move, uh, to address and achieve um, a move back to public transport. Quite understandably, um, people have re resorted to their own cars where they can um, because of the fear of COVID. And we've seen empty buses and trains. We've got to get people um, back to using public transport again. And of course, we've got to start trials of, uh, of heavy transport to find out whether we can use electrification uh, or whether uh, we're going to need to be using to be using hydrogen. So there's an enormous amount to do, but we really have to move from thinking and developing policy to actually making things happen on the ground. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julie. That was great. And a great sort of introduction to some of those trade-offs and reminding us about um, COVID and Brexit and the pressure that governments are under as well. I'm delighted we've already have, had our first question about the Cumbria coal mine and trade-offs there. So we'll no doubt come on to that in, uh, uh, in, in, in the questions. Um, but I'll turn now to, to Guy. Um, uh, Julia highlighted there, and, and, and we know some of the um, sort of huge uh, uh te technological challenges here this is also a government and a prime minister who are um prone to uh big ambition on uh, and uh, kind of grand projects um uh, offshore, offshore wind hydrogen uh, the um uh, uh, air sector green ships carbon capture uh, all of those will be heavily reliant on bringing new projects to the market at scale uh, and developing that technology. Are we in a good place to do this? Is the government um, guilty of relying too much on that sort of techno optimism I, I, I mentioned? And, and uh, how uh, fit do you think the government is to make the right choices on technology? Uh, Guy? So, well, we need we need some grand ambitions on on, on technology. It's worth, it's worth pausing for a moment and just saying we've had some incredible successes in the last 10 years. Offshore wind uh, always gets gets rolled out. It's worth reminding ourselves that it was almost it was kind of killed five years ago uh, uh, as, as as part part of um, part of some of the, the, the clawbacks on the, on the green stuff. Electric vehicles, huge success story. You know, you can see a big uh, consumer uh, consumer pull for that. So, what what are the areas where we do need um, we need some activity and we need some sort of some of that optimism to turn into reality. So, you know, there is a long list. Julia was rightly cutting down her list and I'll, I'll rattle through a few of them. Nuclear, you know, we need to uh, get the, the 
uh, we need to make that more straightforward to, to power plants and, and learn from uh, the successes of elsewhere. Uh, areas we don't talk enough about, agriculture, bioenergy, negative emissions, industrial processes, you know, how are we going to get uh, cement and steel all made uh, in low carbon, carbon ways. But the one I'm going to highlight jumping on, on what Julia said is about heat and buildings. And that's not actually a, a tech challenge in the same way. We often get kind of obsessed with, with technologies in this debate for all sorts of uh, good reasons. But actually, you know, to a certain extent, some of the technology exists. We need to do some innovation around and some, some demonstration around some of the, the potential around hydrogen. But there are technologies which exist and can be uh, ready and used today. But the innovation that we need, the progress we need, is about how we make it easy for people to switch to uh, low-carbon heating. And that's about, you know, where the costs should fall, but that's also about thinking about business models, areas where we don't spend enough time thinking about um, innovation uh, uh, policy generally. How do we make it really easy? We don't have to go on some kind of grand designs, epic mission to uh, to to put a heat pump into your home, which which for, for, for people who are kind of confronting it at the moment, if we want to get it to 600,000, that's what we're going to have to, to, to focus on. And of course, none of this is going to happen without policy. Um, I'm all for uh, plenty of support for the innovation uh, sector. Indeed, I've got quite a strong vested interest working for an innovation agency thinking about that. But in order, you don't get um, offshore wind down from you know 150 pound a megawatt hour to 40 pounds a megawatt hour. Uh, in in a in a lab, demonstration facilities, test facilities are essential as part of that. But you need scale, um, and the innovators we talk to all the time they're constantly say, "Right, what I need is a market to be able to sell into," and that's certainly the case with heat and uh, other other areas. So, so what you know, what kind of policy challenge you need to think up? We need to get the set of economic incentives right. You know they're a bit of a mess carbon incentives across the economy at the moment some areas got really strong incentives to decarbonize some areas are actually subsidizing pollution guess which areas we're doing really well in um you need to think about what the uh, what the markets are going to be for for some of the changing technology you know if you've got a much windier system that's going to require a different set of market arrangements from uh what we have uh now and then on top of that you need you know targeted innovation support um, in particular areas. And, and government really needs to think about where it should be focusing on that. Thankfully, some of the work the government's done over the last few years around energy innovation needs assessments gives them a really good starting point of what are the big innovation questions, the kind of the, the things that are kind of 10, 15 years away that they need to, to work on. Um, because because the time between now and 2050 is nothing in energy technology terms. Most energy technologies kind of take... Uh, decades to kind of come to fruition the one exception to that which is really exciting is is kind of where the digital technology can speed up some of these areas and that's that's an area um of of real potential that, that again we've got to think through what the implications would be but that's about government you know organizing itself in the right way as well um you know some of the excellent reports that the uh the institute has done uh, looking at this the characteristic of net zero requires a lot of central coordination that's not about central planning that's not about reinventing cgb but it does mean that there has to be a set of structures where decisions make clear and i having been involved in clean growth strategy i would have killed um if uh uh we uh we had had two cabinet committees who were driving driving this you really need that that kind of central um uh grip and the other thing the other 
a strategic question is that balance between local government. A CCC report was excellent uh, on highlighting this issue. We've been pushing it for a long time. We've got 250, 300 climate emergencies across the UK declared by local authorities. Not many of them have a serious plan to, to deal with that. How do we get them resourced thinking about this properly uh, in, a, in a powerful way? And that's how you unlock the kind of change that, that we need uh, that Julia set out in the next 10 years. That's great. Thanks, Guy. Um, energising urgency, but also a sense of the scale of the challenge um, there. We've got loads of questions coming in already, so do um, do keep questions coming in, and um, I will rattle through as many of them as, as I can. But um, move, moving on to uh, Emma uh, now. Um, Julia mentioned COVID. Um, I, I was also struck that um, a big theme of the uh, Sixth Carbon Budget and the CCC report was fairness. Um and uh, uh, we're already seeing an exacerbation of inequalities in the in, in, in the UK because of the coronavirus crisis. Um, do you think the government is doing enough to think about and ensure fairness for consumers in the energy system? Uh, and what do you think the kind of sort of long term structural risks are if if the government doesn't get that right? Oh, I think we've lost uh, we've lost Emma. Uh, hopefully we'll get Emma back uh, imminently. Um, uh, but uh, let's move on to let's move on to Will uh, first. I'll um, I'll save that question for Emma because I'm interested in what she's uh, thinking, uh, what she thinks about it. But um, Will, um, you've been looking at um, uh, the UK's capacity for policy making in uh, uh, for, for decision making in in energy policy, and particularly about how well the government uses. Um, evidence to make those uh, decisions. Can you talk us through a bit about the work that, that we've been doing in recent months uh, to, that tells us about how the government makes those decisions and how it uses uses evidence in particular? Thanks, Alex. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as Guy said, lots of the challenges here require government to work, uh, you know, we require us to think about how government works, how government's organised. Uh, we've looked in particular at how government uses evidence. And clearly that's not the only ingredient in policymaking. Obviously, you know, the political drive, uh, some of the organisational structures, etc., are also important. But uh, if you don't have good evidence and if you're not building policies on good evidence, you're likely to, to go badly wrong. So we looked uh, internationally. We looked compared the UK and how, how the British government uses, en- uses evidence compared to a few comparators. And actually, the, the picture's um, pretty good, uh, I think, overall, that Bayes has a lot of things to feel good about, particularly around energy modelling, uh, really strong internal modelling capacity when compared to comparative countries. Um, and obviously, in the Climate Change Committee, has a, a you know, genuinely world-leading uh, advisory institution for the kind of big strategic picture. Um, but we also identified quite a few ways in which the UK government isn't using evidence as effectively as it could, And I think they boil down to a set of issues around having rather narrow perspectives sometimes. So not engaging widely enough, um, not always engaging uh, international examples, not engaging academia effectively. And some of the processes within government, things like the impact assessment, drive a lot of the evidence uh, collection and, and focus around value for money and cost benefit rather than some of the issues that um, both Guy and Julia talked about, which are around delivery, understanding the the real nitty-gritty of uh, how to build stuff, how to deliver it, how to deploy it, um, and the householder decisions around things like, um, you know, installing heat pumps or, or retrofit. And some of those kind of real-world um, challenges that need engineering expertise, social research, have, have been a bit neglected. 
And looking internationally, we can see some examples of how other countries do sometimes draw more effectively on evidence from outside sources, from external sources, either because like Germany, they've got a political system that relies much more on consensus building. So you have lots of different political actors throwing each other's evidence at each other. And through that process, you get a greater diversity of perspectives. Or because like in the Netherlands, you've got uh, independent institutions that are knowledge-based and are providing expertise into government, uh, like the CCC does, but at a finer grain of, of detail. So kind of picking through impact assessments and really getting into the policy nitty gritty on really specific policies in a much more detailed way. So, you know, our conclusion basically is that government's got quite a lot, is getting quite a lot right, but the challenges of net zero means it needs to do a lot better. And we've seen plenty of examples of policies uh, that have not done well in part because of weak evidence use. I mean, I think the Green Deal is the, you know, the totemic um, example. Um, and so we think government needs to do more to engage externally. Uh, part of the answer to that, we think, is supporting external organisations that can that can advise government, things like the Energy System Catapult, so keeping Guy happy, um, and the UK Energy Research Centre, um, but also ensuring greater scrutiny of policy, so beefing up things like the Regulatory Policy Committee, which can be an extremely dry kind of regulatory process, but provides scrutiny on policies as they develop and can help ensure that government is uh, testing evidence um, as it goes through and as it builds uh, builds policy development. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was really encouraged, actually, in the, the white paper to see a whole chapter on energy modelling. Um, and as a, as a former energy modeller, someone with a background in that area, I was delighted because I think it's that kind of initiative to open up uh, open up evidence building is so important because otherwise, you know, however expert base is, it, it can't uh, it can't do this by itself. It can't do all the thinking alone. It needs to be better at opening up some of that thinking and that evidence collection to a wide of uh, perspectives. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Well, really comprehensive uh, tour around those uh, issues there. Uh, while we're still trying to get uh, still trying to get Emma back. I shall ask, uh, I, I, I trailed the question about um, uh, the Cumbria coal mine, um, and we've uh, got um, a question from Nick Bowman, um, which simply asks, does the new Cumbria coal mine suggest the government is not truly serious about decarbonising the uh, economy? Um, uh, I know the uh, CCC has had uh, views on uh, on this. So, Julia, do you want to, to kick, off on, uh, kick off on that question, and then I might ask uh, Guy what you make of it? Uh, well, I'm happy to uh, uh, kick off on that. In fact, we wrote a letter to um, the minister uh, on uh, at the end of last week to uh, express our concern from the CCC about the uh, planning permission for the new coal mine. Uh, I think we do need to recognise that it's a coking coal mine. It's not a, it's not power station coal. Um, so it's actually for steel, primarily for steel making. But the uh, the planning uh, request for the coal mine did say that um, I think something like 80% of the coal it produces will be for export. So it's not even as if we need all of this coal for our own steelmaking processes. So the, the CCC um, six carbon budget and net zero pathway say, you know, recognizes that we won't be using coal for generating electricity uh, by 2024. That'll all, have, that'll all have gone. And by 2035, industry like steelmaking will need to be decarbonized. So if we are still using coal in steelmaking, it will have to be um, with carbon capture and storage with very high capture rates. But it may well be by then 
that uh, we've moved to using hydrogen in steelmaking, and there's a lot of interest, certainly in Europe, in in replacing um, using using hydrogen for the uh, for the, the reduction processes in steel, which would get rid of the the need for coking coal. So, um, why you would give this coal mine um, planning permission out to um, 2049, which is what has been granted, just in the run up to COP, uh, is something we don't understand, and we think sends an extremely negative message. Thanks, Julia. And Guy, uh, it looks like we've got Emma back, so I'll come to you in a moment, Emma, which is brilliant news. Um, but be- before we do that, um, Guy, does it does it tell us something about the trade-offs? I mean, is, 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 the, is, is this a government that's really going to take those trade-offs seriously enough, do you think? So, so well, time will tell more broadly. I mean, um, on the on the specifics of the of the of the of, of the of the permission in Cumbria, the, the important you know the important challenge is how are we going to get um, the innovation necessary in steelmaking uh, so that by the dates that the Julia set out, um, we're able to um, we're able to create um, low carbon low carbon steel, and we've got that in some processes related to steel to do with. Um, on the electricity side, but we're certainly going to need other other areas, and hydrogen has a huge uh, potential. But then that's got to be seen in the round. How are you then protecting steelmakers in the UK? What's the potential role for border carbon tariffs? All of those issues have to be uh, considered in the round. And of course, we we get fixated on a particular decision, and it's it's right. But what we need is a kind of uh, a, a robust plan for the the transition of steel to low carbon. Thanks, Guy. And Will, you've talked a bit about the um, uh, sort of challenges of cross-government um, decisions like like this. Have you got any thoughts on the, the Cumbria mine? And then MRI will come come to you. Well, I think it's a, a you know a pretty clear case. I mean, it was it was fairly obvious that Bayes were not thrilled by the decision, and it's a pretty clear case of what IFG's talked about in its net zero work that uh, Bayes doesn't have the clout across government to drive all of the net zero decisions that need to be taken. And that really point, you know, begs questions about uh, if Bayes doesn't have the clout, then, you know, it, who does? It's a kind of prime ministerial level uh, set of objectives. And we need to ensure that there is greater power at the centre to coordinate some of these net zero issues, because these trade-offs will come up. They'll, you know, they've come up here in, in the case of this coal mine. Uh, they'll come up again around uh, regulation of buildings and uh, concerns about whether building regs will drive up costs of new build, etc. So we really need to ensure that we've got the clout at the centre to kind of ensure that departments are uh, aligned around the priority of net zero, um, rather than leaving it to Bayes, who, you know, are not strong enough always to, uh, to drive that across government. Mm. So one of, we've uh, made several uh, IFG reports recommending uh, stronger centre and uh, uh, more uh, central coordination and uh, dealing with trade-offs around around net zero. But now, as as much trail, uh, Emma, <laughs> sorry about the connection. Uh, I my, uh, hate was, technology. Uh, Don't let anyone tell you that I'm a fan of a technology <laughs> revolution. Um, uh, yeah. Inequality, inequality, and the importance of um, uh, addressing inequality. To, yeah, it's all, uh, or more broadly, it's the kind of how how do people fit into this? And mm. we've kind of spent most of the conversation so far talking about the technology roadmap to deliver net zero as we should, um, because certainly whole system change is is how we're going to do this. But there are individuals on the other end of the system. Um, And I was struck by the Energy White Paper for two reasons, just aesthetically. Firstly, the the consumers chapter was up front 
so people at the heart of what's coming in, in energy policy and net zero. And the second thing was that there was a picture of a house on the front of the document, which is not what you'd have got in old school energy policy publications before. It wasn't, for example, pylons or a power station. And that tells you about where we're going with energy policy over the next couple of decades. And um, the, I think the, the kind of flagship announcement in the white paper and a, and a key theme coming through it was this idea of a, I think they called it a strategic dialogue between government and customers and the industry to look at who pays for the transition and kind of fairness and equity. And, and if there was a theme in the white paper other than net zero, it was, it was that. And, and for, for the energy sector, I think what that means is twofold. Firstly, we're looking for a policy and regulatory landscape that um, means that our customers, the media, politicians, others, um, see the costs that are on energy bills to fund the transition as fair. Um, and the second thing that we're looking for is a recognition in policy that that captures this move from a relationship between the industry and customers as being quite a passive one to one where in a net zero system we're going to have much more active customers, many more actors, more competition, and 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 having to do the things that we already do that take care of, of vulnerable people. And that's very, very important if you think about where decarbonisation is going, which is into heat and transport and areas of the economy which are innately much more personal and feel much more and are much more disparate. So getting the right mechanism for the right kind of person is going to be key. Um, I mean, you asked about... Uh, bills and, and, and fairness and let's start there Look, i think you know baroness brown and others have already said the energy transition is fundamentally a capex problem and we're going to have to invest hugely in the next decade for um to to get the benefits of decarbonization by 2050 it's a kind of upfront investment that 50 billion and we also need to unlock private capital to do it so two-thirds of that investment is, is expected to come from industry um, and what that basically means is if we continue to do it through energy bills, um, where customers already pick up a disproportionate amount of the cost of decarbonisation and where bills can be regressive, that you can see that, A, preventing investment in the private market and making innovation more difficult, but B, potentially being a problem if we're having to do a lot of that, um, if there are a lot of costs coming in the short term to get the long-term benefits back. So I think this the... The government's analysis on on energy policy and, and where we're going needs to really understand costs, needs to keep them off bills as much as possible, actually. But then also be clear on where, if we're investing in things through bills, where the benefits come back. And we've mentioned offshore wind. I mean, we've got a booming UK industry, which is providing cheaper electricity off the back of that investment. We're not always very good at making that case or thinking that through. Um, in terms of COVID, the industry has been trying to do an awful lot for consumers. As you'd imagine, we're an essential service. We've got essential workers. There's already the uh, price cap on bills, which means that the vulnerable customers are always in kind of standard tariffs protected. But there's been further agreement in the short term between government and suppliers to keep up additional support for um, customers on things like prepayment meters. So there's a kind of this short term action going on. I'd argue that the equity and bills point there is about more long-term stuff and in particular investing in the building stock to make sure that we're using less energy seems like a good way to go. So we've got Eco and the Warm Homes Discount. Those are funded by energy um, suppliers that through, you know, in, in the form of an obligation. Um, 
the government's own fuel poverty advisors have said that they're not sufficient. Um, and again, they're funded on bills, so there's a conversation to be had there. Um, we've talked about the Green Homes Grant, um, and we, there's been an increase to universal credit. But these are, again, all quite short-term, piecemeal things, and they don't really grasp the scale of what's coming in terms of decarbonisation. And, you know, one of the things we argue for is a massive you know, infrastructure scale rollout of energy efficiency measures, which will help not just uh, vulnerable customers, but all customers. Um, and then, you know, lastly, and perhaps most importantly, you know, Guy touched upon it, This that's still quite an old fashioned way of thinking about energy. It's, you know, the, the typical relationship with a customer and, and just use less. And, and it's right that we do that. But I don't think we're being anywhere near imaginative enough about the relationship between customers and, and their energy in future. And some of the best things that we know retailers can do for all consumers, particularly vulnerable ones, is invest in things like really good communication, in thinking about energy services and, and much more broadly about the service they offer to customers. So things like helping them you know, access EVs, helping them access heat pumps in the future, helping them um, with smart meters get control of their energy use. Um, we could be doing much more interesting and innovative things with customer data to make sure we're looking after all the demographics in the energy system. And our regulation is nowhere near catching up with that reality, um, let alone a world where customers can do things like load shift on the grid or will be using their own technologies in their homes to provide grid services. So to do that, I'd argue that we need to be looking much more at markets to get price signals right so we can get innovative you know, new business models and new energy services way because that's in the long-term interests of customers. And and lastly, I have stood on this soapbox in every job I've been in for the last decade, so why not do it here? The government never, ever thinks about engagement first. They think about policy first and technology, and they never think about kind of behaviour change and, and the, the people that it hits in terms of policy until the last minute. So, you know, one of my favourite examples is that we spend almost nothing on communications for the renewable heat incentive, which is fundamentally a policy getting customers to in, invest in an unusual form of heating and, and receive a payback for it. And I think we need to be much, much, much better at doing that over the coming decade. And we have seen from the success of the Climate Assembly that if you really do engage people with complex policy decisions, they often come back recommending firmer measures than we would have anticipated. So we've got a good case study for doing that now. There you go. Uh, Maybe that's yeah. worth the trial. <laughs> definitely, definitely. No, that was great. Th thanks, Emma. And you've got agreement from Jeremy Nicholson in the uh, comments and uh, questions. Emma's right. Government needs to consider how heat decarbonisation can be supported through general taxation to mitigate the impact of policy costs on consumer <laughs> business energy bills. I was also going to highlight a question. I think you've covered it, Emma, to some extent, but from Philip Johnson, who asked about fuel poverty. What about fuel po poverty? The increased costs of all the decarbonisation will lead to increased prices in real terms or will we get lower prices? Do you think there's anything particular, Emma, on, on fuel poverty? I think, as I say, you, you touched on something. So I think, yeah, as I've said, that's still a group that the, the retailers are obligated to and already kind of um, look to support through the various different... Um, schemes and policy instruments on bills designed specifically to tackle that. Again, the, the already the government's own advisors suggest that they are not um, big enough to really help. So there's, there's kind of targeted instruments we could still um, look at there. 
more broadly, though, this is about the kind of the cost of decarbonisation, how it falls across the economy mm-hmm. as a whole, right? So, um, if we got that right, and if you can make the markets work, that the retailers can step in and 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 invest their own capital in getting some of these new technologies away. Um, then I think you might find that the the costs fall more fairly, and that's I mean that's what hopefully the government is getting at when they're talking about the strategic dialogue. But I think it isn't just a Bayes conversation and focused on energy. It's got to be the how do we fund a, a whole economy shift, and our energy bills still the right place to do it. And if they are, are we clear about the benefits overall to people, and do we fully understand who's paying for things up front? Um, so I know that's not I mean. It's not a specific answer because we we haven't done the analysis, but that's where government needs to go. It needs to be much bigger in how it's thinking about this. Yeah, thanks, uh, Emma. There's a question about the um, slightly different area, the, the regulatory framework, um, which, Julia, I might ask y- you to comment on first, but it's from Sissy Liu. I hope I've pronounced uh, your name right, but um, uh, asking the energy regulatory framework is rigid. How would you like to see government flex to facilitate anticip- anticipatory net zero investment uh julia have you got anything to well, well uh, that's certainly a good point we do we do need to see um much more in the way of anticipatory uh, net zero um investment uh, and i think we are seeing off gem the uh, the regulator uh, starting to look at how can we uh, make the right kind of things happen with their their new suggestion that uh, that um, another other part you know parts of the system need to be separated away from um the uh, the network uh, providers because the network providers um, would like more more network and more electricity because that that gives more shareholder return and actually we want a smart um, and uh, really um, flexible uh, electricity system ideally with as little electricity as possible in it um, and that's not necessarily what uh, what the what will drive um, the network providers and and the same is very much true. Um, at the distribution network level, I mean, I, I happen to chair the um, the um, Cambridgeshire and uh, and Peterborough Combined Authority Independent Climate Commission, uh, and we've got real challenges there with councils trying to do quite innovative things, um, linking solar farms to local off-gas grid communities to try and put uh, try and put electrical heating. Um, community-based electrical heating systems in to replace their oil-based heating uh, and real frustrations with that interface with um, with connecting up to the distribution uh, system, which um, would be solved if the distribution system providers um, were looking at, at making the right kinds of investments in, uh, in upgrading the grid ahead of time rather than waiting for each request and then coming up with um, a huge cost that then makes the project look um, look look like there's, there's there's no opportunity to have any payback on. So absolutely, it's a it's a very appropriate question, um, a very appropriate point, and I, I do think we need more movement in in this area. Thanks, Julia. Uh, Will, have you got any thoughts on that? Uh... Well, just I mean, really to echo Julia's point, I mean, I think regulatory agility is you know something that is incredibly important when you have a major transition with new technologies emerging i mean i was recently talking to ups the um, logistics company they had real trouble upgrading their fleet of uh, delivery vehicles in london to electric vehicles because of the limitations on the the local distribution grid and they ended up having to 
buy and pay for the distribution grid upgrade assets, but those assets, they weren't able to own them. So they paid for an asset that's then owned by the local distribution company. And that's not a position that a company likes to be in, to pay for someone else's assets. But the regulatory system was too inflexible. Um, And, you know, there's countless other examples like that of where the nitty gritty of um, technological change is, is slowed down by regulatory inflexibility. So I think, I mean, Ofgem has been working quite hard at things like regulatory sandboxes, etc. But, you know, all of this stuff needs a lot of thinking to enable new technologies to be tested and developed. And uh, that requires quite a lot of work. Thanks, Will. Um, Guy, we've had a few questions, as you might expect, about new nuclear. Um, so uh, interested in, in your thoughts on this. Tom Railton, do we have to accept that government will need to directly fund new nuclear to bring down costs? And how important is it that fast decisions are made on this to preserve nuclear skills? Uh, another about stressing the advantages of nuclear, um, smart and super grid. So, uh, Guy, what's your what's your take on that? So, so, uh, so it's, it's, it's been a question that's kind of been festering in energy policy for the last uh, de- decade or so. And we've obviously got uh, one new power station uh, coming online at Hinkley. Um, but we've got, you know, potentially quite a few, uh, few coming off. I mean, you know, nuclear has, has obviously characteristics where the state is going to have a heavy involvement. Um, but in some ways, the policy we've kind of designed gives it uh, tries to um, tries to see that it's going to be all delivered in the in the in the market um, and you know so, so putting a lot of pressure and so we've, we're kind of in these contortions to try and come up with financing structures that that work for people I think the, the starting point your starting point question is how do we make nuclear maintain its high safety levels and how do we make it cheap how do we actually get it on the cost reduction curve that, that we've seen with other technologies and you know, guess what? The countries that have done that, uh, South Korea and, and other words, have done it on a programmatic way. You do one, you learn from it, and you build another one. Um, you know, you you get those those benefits to learning. But we, you know, in in the past, and this is not just a kind of recent thing. This is history of nuclear policy since 1950s. We've kind of done it in a series of bespoke reactors, and every time thought we'll we'll try and invent something new, but. Um, but that's going to take, you know, new, uh, the, the, the government to really think about, you know, how you can do it in a programmatic way. But nuclear, if it doesn't kind of see that as a serious challenge, and that's a challenge for the industry as much as, as government, and certainly people in the industry do see this as a challenge, you're seeing the competition, whether it's offshore wind, et cetera, um, uh, uh, falling in costs the whole time, and so the case, uh, you know, it's still we still see it as very strong for nuclear, but the case gets weaker and weaker. But of course, if if, if cost reduction was able to happen, then uh, and that's financing, that's about build, then then we'd be in a much better position. But um, uh, but 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 you know that needs that needs quite strong coordination, uh, probably more than any other technology. Thanks, guy. Does anybody else want to come in on uh, new nuclear? Uh, chance Emma. I, I can't it's so in, I think guys right it's been 10 years of talking about it but I mean the, the there are two things to say one it's in the CCC pathways so if we don't do new nuclear then we have to figure out something else to close that the gap that I haven't yet seen a um a net zero pathway that is a 100% renewables led net zero pathway and the, and the reasons 
for that are about things like grid physics mainly, but also the costs of running the system as in uh, from intermittency. Um, but and and relatedly, because a lot of that would have to come from offshore wind, and there's a kind of geographic constraint where you put it. So it's it's most of the cost-effective pathways to to do net zero have have nuclear in. Now they they might have one to two nuclear power stations, but it's still in there. Um, the other technologies to close that gap where where we think it starts to get expensive for renewables are also things like you know having CCUS, which are other you know, early stage technologies that we don't have yet and would have to invest in. And so um, it's a challenge from a, a systems point of view. From a from a policy point of view, it's about the funding model, as Di says, you know, and this the kind of public private partnership. Um, in that and the energy white paper did take things a step forward they said they they try and get to final investment decision on you know a, a nuclear power plant by the end of this parliament but it's that bit on i suppose how much of a stake the government's going to take that it, it is missing and that's where you know that's where they need to kind of sharpen their thinking thanks emma uh, julia what do you think and we've also this this discussion has prompted a number of points about tidal what about tidal power so uh, um julia well, I was just going to point out that in our, our sort of core scenario for the six carbon budget and for net zero, um, we the, we have about 80% renewable, 80% renewable generation by 2050. But if you actually look at uh, at the makeup of the electricity system, it's still very diverse. Although a huge chunk of that um, that generation is renewable, a huge majority is renewables. Huge chunk of that is wind, and a lot of that's offshore wind. When you actually look at what's on the system. There is still nuclear. There is still things like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Um, there's also hydrogen um, in in gas turbines in a, a, able to do peak lopping or to come on when the wind isn't blowing. So it's a really quite diverse system still. It's not just um, a renewable system as uh, as Emma was saying. And and you know and and tidal. The only reason why we don't have tidal in our our system um, for the CC in in the CCC models is simply cost and that we haven't seen a, a convincing pathway that will deliver dramatic cost reductions for, for tidal. But, you know, if that appears, then uh, it will get incorporated into our into our pathways because we're always looking to see uh, how can we do this at the lowest, uh, at, you know, at the lowest possible cost um, to, to the consumer and, and to the country. And we need more broadband rather than more roads. <laughs> It sounds like Alex has dropped off, so I, I might um, step in. I don't have access to the questions that are coming in. But first of all, I think um, on this this question of, of tidal, I mean, I think clearly uh, marine technologies, wave and tidal, have just proved to be more um, difficult to bring the costs down and to make work effectively than people 10 years ago had hoped, uh, which, is, which is a real shame because obviously tidal is um, much more reliable than wind um, and, uh, you know, much more forecastable um so i think that's you know it's it's just a real challenge getting that kind of uh, cost reduction um is is really difficult um there's a question here um a, a perhaps pointed question from the from the uh, from the audience about whether the same research effort has been devoted to tidal as has been to nuclear i think the answer is clearly no um uh as far as i'm aware i mean it, i think that the, the real challenge there is that um getting getting cost reductions and, and durability in tidal has been about supporting 
um, early development of prototypes. And um, yeah, I mean, arg arguably, it does make sense to fund uh, that R&D um, more. But I think there's there's big questions about um, scale up and, and speeds of deployment. There's, um, there's a couple of questions about actually renewables costs in. I think it's worth, so there's a bigger, there's a bigger question at stake here, which might be interesting given this is about energy policy. And that's about the kinds of infrastructure we're investing in. So um, nuclear into a certain extent, certain extent tidal if it's lagoons rather than arrays are um tend to be bespoke projects at the moment and that's guy's point about you get cost reductions when things can be serialized and someone's asked about you know how are we sure about renewables costs are you taking the whole life cycle costs into consideration the answer is yes and one of the reasons renewables was able to scale you know scale up scale down so quickly scale up in volume scale down in prices that we could serialize them so we could do the manufacturing really quickly we we could we the sites are similar-ish when we when we go to build them we got better at um operations and maintenance that will change a bit as we go out into deeper waters but it's still pretty clear that again we'll we'll come down the learning curve and the cost will reduce with tidal is a much earlier stage technology and I, I used to work on it and their problem has been a lack of a route to market so generally in this country we're quite good at investing in r&d for technologies but we're less good at then seizing them and scaling them up we tend to we have historically let that happen in other markets and then pick them up further down the development curve and if we're interested in tidal there's an argument that the uk really should you know give it a route to market and see if they can start doing this serialization with um with a raise with lagoons just as with nuclear they're likely to need something a bit different than than like a you know a cfd or, a, or an auction or a route to market in that way because they're bespoke projects and when we look at the net zero challenge there are some things in the economy which are going to going to require that kind of infrastructure investment and thinking just as there are some technologies and infrastructure that can probably get away if the government just gets the framework right and allows the market to innovate within it and, and we have a kind of competitive marketplace. And that is the thinking we need government to do. They need to step back and think about which technologies we want to own the industrial footprint for here in the UK and bring from R&D through to development, which ones they're going to give a competitive route to market for and allow private industry to really do, and which ones might require a different kind of investment. We need them for strategic reasons, like, for example, filling the bit of the, the system that we're not sure renewables can do. So... Um, I mean, that's a big answer to some of the questions in there, but it does answer why there's been a difference between it, how we've treated things like tidal nuclear and renewables and why the costs are a bit different. Um, lots of tidal fans on the chat. Yeah. Um, that, thanks, um, thanks, Emma. I think you've, you've all proved the unnecessariness of having a chair there. So uh, thank you for, uh, uh, thank you for jumping <laughs> in where my, uh, my internet connection went down. Apologies. Um, I was I was going to ask, uh, uh, you said, Emma, lots of, lots of fans of tidal, but another big subject uh, area raised by uh, Nick Bowman um, asking whether the government should be looking more at carbon trading schemes to encourage move from carbon-based energy um, and whether that might also help levelling up. Uh, so anybody got any thoughts on uh, carbon trading? Guy, I might pick on you first. So, so this goes back to the, I mean, it, it depends exactly what you, what you mean by, by, by carbon trading here. And I'm not quite sure how you get leveling up in there as, as, as well. It sounds like one, one scheme to, uh, to solve lots of the world, world's problems. <laughs> I think, um, the, the important thing on, um, on, on carbon incentives across the economy, as, as I said in my, in my talk, is that we need, you know, that you need to get a set of economic incentives right. 
uh, across the economy. Um, and if you are looking at aviation or domestic heating or um, uh, commercial heating, then effectively we are subsidising pollution. Now, I'm not one, partly for political economy reasons, who just thinks, well, of course, the answer is we just put in a, um, uh, a carbon tax across the whole economy and uh, off, off, off we go. I know that's the most uh, elegant solution, but I think the political economy of that is extremely difficult. So it's going to require for different sectors, recognising international competitiveness and other issues, um, it's going to require a different set of solutions. And some of that will be regulatory. Some of that will be uh, pricing. Some of that will be uh, subsidies to, to, to move forward. But, but we need to think about uh, those particular areas. The areas where you probably got the strongest case for, 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 for carbon trading and getting some mechanism in place is around the link between areas where it looks very difficult to find answers by 2050. So aviation, for example, lots of exciting innovations happening, but to replace it at scale, what are they then paying for at the other end, um, either in the industrial decarbonisation or in negative emissions, etc.? How do you get those two joined up? So you're confident about negative emissions and the, the industries that are very hard to offset are being offset in the right way. I, I think I'm going to disagree disagree slightly with uh, the last thing that guy said there it just it just looking at the experience of uh, innovation that's been driven by uh, carbon markets uh, around around the world over the last couple of decades and i just echoing his point about political economy it's proven really difficult to get carbon prices high enough uh, either through carbon taxes if you put carbon taxes too high you get uh, riots as you know recently in france with the gilets jaunes um, and it's proved, proven very difficult to get carbon trading systems to have a tight enough cap um, to drive prices price. high. And the, re the result of that is that the innovation impacts of carbon prices have tended to be relatively incremental. And in, um, you know, they, they've pushed technologies when, once they're already closer to maturity and they've pushed more incremental efficiency type uh, innovations rather than seeding the kind of investments in in more radical new technologies that we need in in areas like aviation so um yeah, i'm i'm a fan of of carbon prices i think they're really important but i think you can't rely on them to drive the kinds of investment signals in radical new technologies because that's often uh, very high risk and people tend to expect carbon prices not to rise um for historically good reasons so i'm I think for those more radical technologies, you do need more dedicated early market support and regulation. Julia, it'd be great to get your take on this. Uh, just on a on a very small part of this, and to be, it picks up really on something that Emma was saying about the the fairness part of this. Um, in in terms of tackling the decarbonisation of of Britain's homes, we've got to move a lot of them um, over to much better insulation and then electric heating. And at the moment, and Guy has alluded to this too, and at the moment we have this, I think, ridiculous system that uh, we have no carbon price on the gas we use to heat our homes, and yet we've loaded all of the costs of decarbonising our power system onto the electricity. So we've got to deal with that before we start trying to move lower-income families onto electric heating. Uh, we need to reverse that and be using the carbon price on the gas to be able to subsidise the, um, the electric heating that uh, we're going to need for so many homes to get us to net zero. Mm. There's a 
linked point there in the uh, questions from uh, Dan Tag. Uh, he asks, uh, retro upgrading the UK's housing stock will take a generation. Why is the UK government so averse to tackling this at the scale required? This links a little bit to some of the uh, uh, sort of uh, Whitehall machinations that um, that were referred to uh, earlier and the uh, the strength of Bayes uh, vis-a-vis other departments, I suspect. But Emma, you look like you want to come in on that one. Oh, it's so... Oh, I'll give you like so the so the there's a political answer which is that politicians as guy as guy said at the beginning of this politicians are always risk averse about going into people's homes and particularly I mean it's funny and not funny but if you pull the British public um, they are much more reticent to have anything done to their homes than almost any other area of the economy there's something about this the kind of not wanting government's intrusion in 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 the choices that you make about your home and. And so politicians are, are wary of it for for very simple they get elected reasons. So there's that, um, and this is the point about twofold why you want people who can make that attractive because it, because that investment means new services for you and your family and 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 lower bills and can kind of so the energy retailers being able to package these technologies and offer you new services that's why that's important. But the, the second thing is that. Government needs to communicate the benefits of doing this and then invest in it at, at scale and because that would drive a virtuous circle. In terms of why they don't then invest in, in kind of fiscal policy and things in the economy, but generally speaking, if you look at impact assessments for energy efficiency policy, the costs and benefits don't really stick in the same place because it's an upfront investment often from bills, but the benefits accrue to the householder. And that, you know, we, that's particularly important for things like private rental where you know a renter might be getting the benefits of lower energy bills but the the cost of the investment might accrue to the landlord or, or a local authority or elsewhere and i think there's something about how we bigger picture think about the investment in what is fundamentally a net zero energy technology and then the benefits that come back to the economy um so that we feel more confident about putting the capital in to deliver at scale and and just finally on, on this point, that often means that we have to think more imaginatively across Whitehall. With energy efficiency, one of the big benefits back to the economy isn't just about reduced energy bills or you know making heat pumps work effectively, so delivering on our net zero challenge. It's also that we, we get fewer respiratory illnesses because people are living in warmer, comfortable homes. And that's a healthcare saving to the NHS. And there have been various policy trials where we've done things like use local NHS commissioning budgets to fund insulation or, or boiler installs because they've seen such a big saving to the local NHS from emissions from people like me who have asthma living in in insufficient in properties. So again, this is about how we fund the transition across government and getting that right. It is about looking at things like whether we should be funding it through electricity bills for such a whole economy challenge. But lastly, um, it's also about communicating the benefits to the public so that the politicians overall feel more comfortable about being ambitious. Thanks, Emma. We're coming to the last sort of five minutes. So so any final questions do keep them coming in. But I was going to ask a sort of open question to each of the each of the panel, really, to um, uh, reflect on some of those uh, trade offs and uh, the uh, kind of communications and the sort of political salesmanship challenge or uh, uh, sales challenge, if you if, if you like. Um, what um, if, if, if you were the government now, what would you what would you prioritise? What would your kind of strategy be for for taking these sorts of uh, decisions over the coming uh, years? Uh, uh, Guy, do you want to have a go at that? 
Sorry, Alex. Taking taking the strategy be on on political communication. Changing the dial politically is what I'm trying to uh, get at. Yeah, it's happened already. But what's the next? What's the next step on that? So I think you, I always see it as a kind of um, as, as a kind of dance that you're trying to do between innovation and your policy signals and your wider communications. So you know, government. Uh, took a politically brave decision just before Christmas to uh, say that they're going to stop the sale of ICEs by 2030, 2035. What allowed them to do that? Well, the fact there's lots of electric cars which are quite desirable on the road. It's much harder 10 years ago when, you know, you have gene whizzes, uh, you know, toppling over corners, uh, uh, going around the place. And so that's what um, it's that it's, it's, you have to be thinking about, you know, if you're talking about heat and buildings, for example, well, what, is the set of propositions which actually makes it attractive and easy for people to uh, to to install energy efficiency to install low carbon heating at the same time you have to be uh, thinking about the wider uh, political communications i don't mean this in the kind of big p you know should it be 80 percent by 2032 which is the kind of debate we have here i mean kind of proper retail politics thinking about what is actually going to work and why the citizens assembly was such a useful uh, innovation in that in that um, area, but we need those conversations to, uh, to 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 go on. So I'm going to be totally unsatisfactory and say it doesn't work if you just do one. If you just did a political campaign, uh, uh, but there's no decent products out there, it wouldn't work. If you just had decent products and the background hasn't changed, and 47% of people still don't realise that their boiler is contributing to climate change, then you're in real trouble. Mm. Uh, thanks, Guy. Ju- Julio, do you uh, do you agree with that? What do you think about it? And the other the, the other interesting question to me I was going to ask you is whether you think there are other bits of the sort of policy making architecture in government that could learn from the experience of the CCC and um, uh, uh, and and the uh, structure that's 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 in place there well well first of all I'd, I'd like to follow on from what Guy was saying because hmm. I really do think that that you know we if we could make some real progress in the building heat challenge before the COP it would be a very very positive step forward uh, and guy has mentioned the you know the disaster that the green deal was uh, and unless the the green homes grant is sorted out very quickly uh, i think the reputation of that is going to be incredibly negative as well so the building heat problem is a, a really big one but before we deal with the heat of course we have to deal with the insulation so um the other one that i the other area that i think um, and, and, and I should just say that, you know, dealing with that in a, in a cross-government um, kind of systems way, it seems to me it's a fantastic opportunity for retraining and job creation. And we are going to have a, a real need for that with the impacts of COVID on, on unemployment. There's a real opportunity for creating really good jobs um, and skilled jobs if we get the, the training in place to um, to support that. Uh, and of course, because what we're doing is reducing the import of fossil fuels, um, we actually take money that we were sending abroad to buy fossil fuels and we're investing it in the UK population and they're going to become taxpayers. And that's kind of win-win-win for the UK economy. Uh, and the other thing that I would really like to, to give a shout out for um, is um, green space uh, and planting trees. Um, and the value of of green space and tree planting for people's well-being, um, but of course also 
uh, as a, cr a key element of the um, uh, of achieving net zero through um, absorbing CO2 emissions and giving us those those negative emissions. But actually, you know, I'd also like to add the additional benefits you can get in the right place in flood alleviation, uh, in terms of shading in cities, taking the temperature down, reducing the urban heat island effect, which is going to get worse uh, because of climate change. Uh, so that's also somewhere where we can create jobs very quickly and we can do something which really people can see is really adding immediate um, value and quality of life for them. And that's something I'd like to see us really getting on with as well. Thanks. Thanks, Julia. That's that's great. Um, we're, we're at our time now, but really quickly, any uh, sort of final words? I can see uh, Emma plus guest, if you, uh, if you <laughs> do want to come in on that. and then, and then It might be more coherent. Um, I think we. It, someone said it at the very beginning of this, which is that we've got now pretty good intent from government, uh, ambitious, you know, 10-point plan for the Prime Minister, an energy white paper, the, the sixth carbon budget and an NDC. So we've got all the roadmaps in the world for the next couple of decades what we lack is the implementation and um i think what would help government do that twofold one look at where the costs of this are falling in the economy which they've started but we think needs to be much more ambitious and there's been loads of ideas on that today and the second thing which we've talked about less is looking at the institutions that can deliver this so do we have the right institutions in the energy sector and, and across government to get this job done um, and do they have the right responsibilities to allow things like, you know, flexible innovation or to take decisions on where, you know, we need bigger bits of infrastructure and so on. So I know that sounds high level, but if you get those right, then everything else will flow from it. Thanks. Emma. Will, final thought. Um, well, I, I agree with all of the above. Um, and I think Guy's point about the, you know, politics is the art of the possible and innovation moves what is possible. So, I, you know, I think... Um, that 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 inter interaction between innovation, the industrial strategy dimensions of energy, giving people jobs in in the transition, etc., all of that is really crucial for maintaining consent and for enabling that kind of you know continued development between new technologies, new ways of doing things, and people's willingness to do it. So, uh, and I quite agree. I think with with buildings, um, you know, we've just had this stop start. Uh, approach for far too long and we need to think about buildings as a long-term transformation uh, it's not just about the new technologies it's about innovation across the supply chain and the industry and that needs to be supported with a much longer term uh, perspective so hopefully the heat and building strategy that's forthcoming will do precisely that brilliant Thank you. And on that note, we're a minute uh, over, so we'll draw it to a close there. Thank you to a brilliant panel. Really appreciated your contributions. Um, uh, uh, and thank you to everybody for all the questions that you've um, sent in. Um, there'll be a recording of this event uh, up on uh, our website and uh, podcast uh, on the IFG live stream in the next uh, 24 hours or so and the final thing i was going to do is if you're interested in this uh, uh sort of subject you should be interested in our climate change conference which is on wednesday the 10th of february from nine o'clock to five thirty. we'll have amber rudd doing a keynote speech and lots of other uh excellent panels and uh conversations there so uh thank you uh, for the questions thanks again to the panel and uh, enjoy the rest of your day Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Bye.